Let's all stand together uh, for just a few moments here. You're going, last week was a, a sweater. What are you doing up there in a suit on a Friday? We, we, had, our, uh, we had our Christian business uh, leaders breakfast this morning in the Anderson Chapel that was filled with area business leaders, and uh, we just kind of all got all nice today. And then it's T-shirt Friday, I'm, I'm recognizing. Dr. Graham, man, you look like you're a part of the power team right there in that T-shirt. You're looking pretty good. Very, very nice. Very, very nice. I'll keep that. Hey, we're going we're gonna to do a couple things while we're standing here, kind of getting ready for uh, these next few minutes together. But, you know, two weeks from today, my mother will be in chapel two weeks from today. My mom's in her 80s. Two of my four children will be in chapel, and four of my six grandkids will be in this chapel two weeks from today. The, um, and what's happening is it's only happened six times in 87 years. So the first president who founded the college, uh, Dr. Lindquist, he was not inaugurated because he was the pioneer of the university, and he was the first person in the room, um, and he was the founder of the college. But then as the next presidents came to the university, and they went through an inauguration, and there's only been six of those in 87 years uh, at this school. So two weeks from today, um, you get to see something that has only happened six times in, in all these years of the university. Uh, the man who gave me my first opportunity in life, uh, Charles Crabtree, my pastor, and was my first boss. I was a junior high pastor. Uh, he's in his uh, mid to late 70s. He's coming. He'll be one of the speakers. Uh, you're going to meet Kwame Anku, who is the president of the Stanford Black Angel Tech Fund, oversees about $50 million and is one of the great leaders and innovators in the world. Uh, he's going to be here in chapel that day. Dan Groves, who was with us this week, is coming back. He's going to jump in and actually participate that morning with us. It's going to be a, a wonderful uh, chapel at 10 o'clock that day, a special day for the inauguration service that I believe everybody is invited to. So I do want to encourage you to kind of stick it, not for me, but to stick it on your, your, your radar screen for two weeks from today, uh, because it's a significant event in which you get to see something that happens kind of rarely uh, in life. And um, so you get to be a part of that day. So um, I want you to stand while I read the verse uh, out of Philemon chapter one. This is what we're going to go to today. So I got my little clicker here. Here we go. Philemon chapter 1, verse 10 says, I appeal to you, the Apostle Paul writes, for my child Onesimus. Now, that's a grown man. Onesimus is a young adult who is a runaway slave. He's an indentured slave, not a kidnapped slave. The scripture is clear. An indentured slave was part of the penal system, the criminal system, in which if you stole property or you harmed somebody, you actually were ordered by the courts as an indentured servant or, or slave of that person to work off the crime. There were places like Patmos and Rome in which there were official prisons, but you had indentured uh, servitude in which you were obligated for a period of time to work that off. Um, kind of a work release program. In California, if you wear one of them orange suits on the edge of the freeway and you're picking up garbage for a DUI, that's kind of what this is, but probably a little bit more intense. This guy skipped town and ran away from his, uh, the person he was obligated to. That man's name was Philemon, uh, who is the name of the person that is the one whom Onesimus fled from. Onesimus is a young adult, ends up in an urban core called Rome, and some guy who's at the end of his life, his leadership life, who doesn't need to do one 
more thing to secure his legacy uh, for the kingdom, the apostle Paul. Um, start sharing Christ with a total stranger. This runaway, this young man, he found a place in his heart to still minister the kingdom even at the later stages of his life. So don't tell me that connections between older and younger cannot happen. This is one of the most profound ones in the Bible. So he leads this guy Onesimus to the Lord, disciples him, and is now going to send him back to fulfill his obligation. Not only does he send Onesimus back, but behind the story, he and another man were given the book of Colossians to deliver to the church at Coloss. So this guy that was a thief, a runaway, actually became a courier of Scripture. That's the kind of transformation. So Paul is writing to Philemon to say, hey, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful to both you and me. And there's a fun little play on words with his name there that I don't have time to go into. Paul's kind of softening because he's about to ask for something incredibly radical of Philemon. So this guy was useless, but now he is useful, both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. So you see the emotional uh, release of this young man that he led to the Lord. He doesn't want to keep him to himself. He says, I'm going to train you for a period of time and then send you back to fulfill your obligation and your assignment. But it's fascinating. It says that he was formerly, formerly was useless. Now, when's the last time you called somebody useless? You're totally useless. But now he's useful. So here's how I would say this. He goes, whom I wish to keep with me so that on, my, on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without consent, I did not want to do anything, Paul writes, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. You are not worthless, but you can be useless. Just let that sink in for just a minute. Nobody in this room is worthless. But there's probably some folk in this room that is still useless. Just let that just sink in for a minute. Just swim in that for a minute. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, you're totally, you, you are not worthless. But part of you is still useless. So we got to get the usefulness and the worth lined up. All righty. Let's pray together. Lord, I just pray you bless our day, the word. Let this come alive, God. And turn useless people into useful people, God. We are all made in your image, God. We all have worth, God. But have we allowed you to fashion our life to make us useful? That's why we are here at North Central in this space of our life. To get rid of our use uselessness. And to become useful for your kingdom, God. Because we have divine worth, Lord. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. So don't ever make somebody feel that they're worthless. But it's okay to remind them, bro, you're acting pretty useless right now. We are here to become useful. Okay, every chapel, I'd like to give you at least maybe three things to put into your heart or mind to write these down somewhere. I usually put these on Twitter or Instagram or somewhere, so after chapel, but if you don't get them written down. But I want to give you three more things that really compel me when I think about kingdom leadership. Number one is this. 
It takes an enormous amount of energy to live your life avoiding people. Think about how we enter rooms. We check out the room. We see what car's in the parking lot, or we kind of see who's there because we don't want to run into that person. And you can begin to collect a lot of these relationships, the ones that you're avoiding. I got to tell you the truth. I was totally useless, and I grew up in an environment that was like a a relational nuclear bomb went off all the time in our house. My dad was the product of his childhood, and of abandonment, and was filled with anger, and he just lived that out for most of my lived experience as a child, watching that imprint. That's why when I got married to Karen, um, I had a vision of what not to be, not a vision of what to become. I've shared that with you before. And it really took some very powerful new role models to pierce through uh, that roadblock, that mental argument I had of not knowing what do I actually do in life? How do I live this thing out? And I remember that I was beginning to avoid people, started in high school. I wouldn't go down, and I'm not talking just about a bully, but somebody I may have lied to, somebody I broke a promise to, somebody that I was neglecting, somebody that I hurt and I could care less, I hurt them and they knew it. And so you begin to practice um, this in life very early, the life of avoidance. The Lord radically healed my life, changed my thinking, and I gotta tell you, I don't think there's a room on the planet that I'm avoiding. I don't think there's a person on the planet. Now, not, every, not everybody's a president of my fan club, nor are they the president of yours. But I'm not avoiding them. There's not something unfinished. So don't be, be very aware in your life if you're beginning to practice the art of avoiding people because it will suck all of your creativity and emotional energy because it takes an enormous amount of energy to live your life avoiding people. It doesn't mean that they want to reconcile, but you need to look them in the eye and say, hey, listen, I just want you to know that my heart is for us to be, to be cool and that this, this is behind us. So if you ever want to talk in the future, they may blow you off and walk away, but your conscience becomes clean in that moment. That's what I'm talking about. And so here's another one that I, I kind of live by. Do you know that most conflict happens when an underreaction collides with an overreaction? That's what's happening in this country. Like there'll be a social event and half our country goes, you know, how come you don't take this serious? It's a big deal. And they're, and they're just very, very, very emotional about it. And they're, they, they're looking at you like, why are you underreacting to this? Don't you see the problem? And then the, the underreactor looks at that person and says, you're overreacting. Well, you're underreacting. Now the fight and the conflict has to do with the overreaction being perceived as an underreaction, the underreaction being perceived by the overreactor, and that becomes the new conflict. There's a different space between that binary of only one single line of the overreaction and the underreaction. The way I practice leadership is I broaden that middle space, and it's a space called civility. I believe it's a place where wisdom and collaboration happen in a place of civility, not reaction. And I may not have the same lived experience as that person who I perceive to be overreacting because I come from a different place. If I put contempt on them and judgment on them for their reaction, I'm being a poor neighbor the way that Jesus called me to be a good neighbor. And I'm not really listening to that individual. And so I'm perceiving that they're overreacting, but I am really marginalizing their experience 
of where they're coming from as to why that affects them the way that they do. And then those that are reacting strongly and look at the underreactors, you cannot also put contempt or judgment upon the underreactor. Their personality may be different. They may be wired differently. They may not have the same childhood experiences. They're emerging into their understanding. But if you look at them and say, why aren't you reacting more to this problem that is affecting my life? And that's what our world is doing. That's the conflict all over this nation and world is the overreaction is trying to, is colliding with the underreaction. We, however, in this room operate differently as kingdom men and women we operate in a place of civility and wisdom between those two and understanding, give space. I give space for what I perceive to be an overreaction. And I also give space to people who I perceive to be underreacting. That out of our dialogue of civility, we come to an understanding where each one has, has really brought their lens or their history to the event. But man, I gotta tell you, just be very cautious of judging the overreactor and be very cautious of quickly judging the underreactor uh, when there's conflict. Operate in a different space called civility and dialogue and wisdom. So here, here's one more. We gotta listen to the person instead of trying to read their mind. Most of us listen. I love today, Jeff, that whoever organized this time and space of silence was very, very powerful. Um, most of us are listening because we simply are pausing and rehearsing what we're about to say the minute they give, give a little break in the action. And then I'm just going to say what I've been rehearsing in my mind, all the while giving the impression that I'm listening to you. You have to listen to people without a preconceived reaction or judgment to what you're hearing. It takes tremendous practice. It's very difficult, but it separates, it separates, I believe, great leaders from very common leaders, is really listening to people when they're talking instead of trying to read their mind and what are you really intending to say. And remember, to walk in integrity simply means that what you think and what you say and what you do are all the same. A lack of integrity means you're thinking one thing, but you're saying something to this person that's really not in your mind. To lack integrity means that you're thinking it, saying it, but behind the scenes you're doing something else. The congruency between what you think, what you say, and what you do, when those three line up, you are a person of integrity, and over time you'll be a person of reputation, not image. And people will place more and more confidence in your life. They'll invite you into more opportunities in life as you walk in mind, word, and action. Those three things have to line up. Over time, people will look at you and say, I can trust you. You are a person of integrity. Okay, let's go to the next verse here. Here we go. The five dimensions of discipleship. I want to plant these five statements in your heart today. And we'll come back and do this in some Friday chapels, do a little deeper dive. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I've been pursuing discipleship, the definition of discipleship, my whole life as a pastor, leader, operating in many, many settings, trying to wrap my hands around being equipped for every good work. What's it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And I I worked along with a, a wonderful man coming to this campus named Dr. Charlie Self. We were able to work through some language 
um, this past year, put it in some publications, and this is kind of an offshoot of some of that work that we did that I think really, really captures the idea of what discipleship is all about. So we have been captured by the Lord, forgiven of our sin, filled with his spirit. Now we're on this amazing experience of transformation in our life. And it's, it's, it's slow, it's fast, it's both. It's the paradox. Some things are gonna feel like a quantum leap. Most of it feels like steady steps. What plagues your generation, and I rarely separate your generation from mine, but what really plagues your generation that was different in my era is that we are so obsessed with speed that the process of seed cannot do its work in our life. We're just terrified of being left out or being late. I had a dude at, at a young adults conference this last year. <laughs> he's sitting there. He's, de- he's fighting depression. He's down. He goes, he's 21 years old. And I said, well, what's, what's really burdening your heart? He goes, man, I just feel like, man, I, I missed my window. My life doesn't matter. I go, son, you're 21 years old and you feel like you missed your, your window? Because he had a friend three years earlier at 18, come up with an idea, sell it to Yahoo or somewhere and made $7 million. And so his friend had already made $7 million and he's still working at Walgreens. You know, and he was feeling like my life just is is horrid because I missed this window. That's a plague on this generation. The plague of speed. When the kingdom of God is entirely built on seed, It takes the same time to grow an apple today as it did in the days of Jesus. And when you read the Word of God, the science of the Bible is agriculture, not technology. And so it grows like a seed. So you're constantly going to have to manage your emotions, which I want to talk about in these five things. So let's talk about the five dimensions of discipleship. First of all, it begins with spiritual formation. Basically, that's a fancy way of saying my relationship with Jesus is real. My hope for you is that when you come to this place, I came as a basketball player to my college. I had no spiritual interest. I never had lifted up my hands in my life. I looked around. I sat in the back for the first half year of my freshman year. I was there to play basketball, sitting in classes, you know, not really letting them know that I basically knew nothing about the Bible. I'd been prayed for. There was this prophecy over my life. But it was just all just a big mess by the time I got on that campus when I was 17. And so I started dating Karen uh, after my freshman year, and I was kind of studying for the ministry, but I wasn't, there was no burn, there was no, nothing, the test of the chest, what Sean said, that that wasn't inside of me. I was there, I I made all league as a freshman basketball player at my college, so everybody kind of liked me. I got a free pass because I could play hoop. But you wouldn't know that. I went and shot hoop with Lizzie the other day, and she destroyed me out there, Lizzie Swanson. So we have a little rematch that we're working on. But back in the day, I could hoop back in the day. I'll show you a picture sometime. So I got a free pass. I was was an athlete. And so what happened, though, is that that next summer, I was dating Karen, and we were talking about the ministry, and her cousin was Rich Wilkerson and all these great leaders that, from our era. And we're sitting in church one day and she, for, like, weeks, and we're dating. I was at her church that summer, and she 
says, hey, um, we're driving. She goes, are you, are you going in the ministry, right? She goes, yeah. Like, we're in love, right? Yeah, so that means I'm going to go in the ministry too. I go, yeah. She goes, can I ask you a question? I go, what? She goes, how come you never lift up your hands and worship God? She goes, I never hear you sing. You just kind of stand there and stare, and you never lift your hands. Because I was so self-conscious. I was so into what people would perceive in me, and I was paralyzed by the fact that none of the other basketball players worship God. And I sat with them. In our whole row, we just all agreed we just weren't worshipers. But then Karen said that. And I just said, well, I had no answer. But I tell you, it rocked my world because I realized I was about to lose her because I wouldn't worship the Lord. She says, if we're going to go in the ministry, aren't you supposed to be like on fire for God? True story. And I go, yeah, yeah. I tell you what, man. That next Sunday, they started singing All Lord God or whatever we were singing back in the day. Man, I was clapping. Those hands went up. I just made sure she saw me. Because I wanted to marry this girl. But in the craziness of that sequence, God began to humble me and prepare me. And you know what? My relationship with Jesus started to become real. It's where it begins. I want your relationship with Christ not to be an NCU Christian college thing or that a group of friends are kind of in on the group plan. I'm not going to stand before Jesus with Karen, by the way. I'm going to stand alone before him. He'll look for my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life not our names. And I just pray, first of, all, first of all, that your relationship with Jesus would become real. Secondly, when I talk about love for God's word, pray without ceasing, shares the gospel, loves the local church, there's a reality to this thing called my Christian faith. The second dimension is personal wholeness, where you can look in the mirror and say, not only is my relationship with Jesus real, but you know what? For the first time in my life, I feel good about myself. I don't mean this in a self-centered, narcissistic way, but in a, in a cleansed, transformative culture where Jesus begins to change how you see yourself. Humility, positive self-image, gratitude, overcoming the past, hope for the future, clean conscience, and the ability to manage your emotions. Personal wholeness is what Jesus is after during your season here at North Central University. You cannot leave here needing a fresh start. you got to leave this place with momentum. You'll spend the balance of your 20s cleaning up the toxic waste and spill of an unfocused life at this university. It'll take you a couple years or maybe the rest of your 20s. That doesn't need to happen. So personal wholeness. where God is working on the inside where the first time you can look in the mirror and say, man, I actually feel good about myself. How about this one? For the first time, you can say, hey, I get along with others. I have healthy relationships. I can give and receive love. And Our musicians, if you guys will come up. I practice forgiveness. 
I engage in social goodness, which is my term. I believe in justice, but justice is the baseline. It simply means the revenge has been removed. But it doesn't mean the anxiety inside the relationship has been removed. We may enact laws and have justice across this nation, but it doesn't mean the anxiety has been lifted. Only Jesus can take away the anxiety. It's called reconciliation, which is higher than simply justice. Don't aim only for justice. Pray for reconciliation through our land. I'm a good neighbor. I have marital and family health. I can manage my sexuality. I I see the marginalized. I have a teachable spirit. I'm hospitable. I actually now get along with people because all of those relationships will converge. When I was interviewing to be the president of this university, they went all the way back to my college days. They talked to people that I was a, where I was a youth pastor 35 years ago. Had I had a string of broken relationships and bad-mouthing people, burning bridges, there's no way that I would have been extended the honor of serving this school. And, it, and I believe this, but it hit me for the first time. You're, you're carrying your whole life forward with you. You don't get to simply say, delete Every relationship matters, every lesson matters, every conversation matters. And if you blow it and screw it up, humble yourself and make it right. So that that person, when they see you years later, cannot say, hey, you wronged me and you never attempted to make it right. You have to get along with people if you're going to be sustainable in your kingdom leadership life. Number four is this. People, a disciple knows their life mission. They finally say, hey, I know what I'm good at. I understand the dignity of labor, the sense of calling, gifts and talents. I'm on mission with spouse. I know how to be on a team. I'm a kingdom builder. I seek the common good. I empower the generation. I know I'm just giving these to you fast and furious. But my prayer this year, as you grow in discipleship, my relationship with Jesus is real. I feel good about myself. Man, I get along with people. Hey, I've discovered what I'm good at. And the last one is I do my work well. I know how to do my work well. When you look in the mirror, this idea of these five values right here, that's what I'm praying for you. My relationship is real with Jesus. I feel good about myself. I'm actually getting along with people for the first time in my life. I actually know what I'm good at. And I'm actually doing my work well. I believe that Jesus has equipped us for every good work so that we can, with a courageous, brave, and emblazoned heart for for God, be able to look into the mirror and look at our world and have these five qualities increasing in our life. I want to pray for you. If everybody could close your eyes just for a moment. I just want to ask before we break from here and then there's going to be a time of prayer and fasting. But I want us to ask this while we're seated. This is real fast. You sit here today, you check the box, but you said, you know what? My relationship with Jesus is actually not that real. I'm not all in. But today I want to begin by settling the reality of my relationship with Jesus. When I was in college, a lot of students checked the box. They got a reference. 
but they did not come to that camp as saved. Their relationship wasn't real. And they began to realize that once they were there. I just want to ask, before we split from chapel or go into prayer and fasting, whatever you're going to do, I'm here today. My relationship with Jesus is not as real as people think, but today, Jesus, I want to step into that reality with you. Whether there's one, many, I don't care. No one's taking pictures. Is there anybody at the, in chapel at the beginning of this year that says, man, I, I just got to repent. and I, My relationship with Jesus isn't real. For some, that may be for the first time in your life, inviting him in in a way that is different than checking the box. For others, there's been a drift. There's been a coldness. But today, your relationship, my relationship with Jesus is real. If that's your prayer, I want you to stand up. Just stand up, balcony, bottom floor. Maybe one of you, two of you, right on. Two, it's good. I just want to find out if there's anybody that needs to come to salvation, come back to the Lord. You're running, you feel backslidden. The relationship with Jesus is not real. There's about 10 of you that are standing. Anybody else before we close this altar call? It's the biggest day of your life. This is going to change the course of everything for you. Anybody else? They say, man, my, I want my relationship with Jesus real. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment in this room right now for you. We have to do this fast right now, but I want everybody, there's about 10 of you all over this building standing. Anybody else that wants to join, you can join now. I want the 10 of you just to step out. I want you to come to the altar. We're all going to be on our feet in a second, but I just want the 10 of you, 11 of you, just to say, Jesus, I want it real. And don't be self-conscious. Don't be anything. Jesus is going to meet you. Would you come now? Start making your way. Would you just begin to sing, Emily? And I just want anybody that's standing right now says, I need my relationship with Jesus to be real. I gave an altar call to Bible college back in the 90s. A basketball player named Joe Bowers got saved. He ran, jumped over the pews in front of the whole school and gave his life to Jesus. It changed the shape of that university for the next five years. Thank you, Jesus. 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 Let's all stand across this building right now. Here's where we're going to start. My relationship with Jesus is real. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I need some student leaders, um, some of the DLs, RAs. You got a friend up here. I want you to come. We're going to pray, but I, want, I don't want anybody alone right now. Just a friend behind their shoulder, their back, that my relationship with Jesus is real. This is the day I'm giving it all to Jesus. Uh, it may be the day of salvation for you, a day of rededication for you, but this is your day. We're going to mark it on this day in September 15th. That was your day, man. Jesus became real to you at North Central today. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. We're going to pray a simple prayer, all of us in this chapel right now, all of us at this altar. We're going to join like a chorus, but we're going to draw a line of demarcation, a day of forgiveness a day of salvation in your life. September 15th, 2017 is the day that Jesus Christ at North Central University became real to you, real to you. Can we all, can we all pray with our friends up here a simple prayer? I want us to pray out loud. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me 
I believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe, Jesus, that you rose from the dead and broke the power of Satan over my life in this world. Forgive me, Jesus, for my sin and any rebellion and any unbelief. And heal me, Jesus, of any pain and wound that's been done to me or that I've done to myself. I welcome you in from this day forward. Be the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen. Let's sing it out. Let's just worship him just for a moment before we go. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you.